who are your top five favorite wrestlers? I don't have them ranked, but I was kind of thinking it through, and um, and and I got I got a few guys that kind of okay. if I think about who who I like my my criteria thinking about it was like who would I I want to turn it on? I'm gonna be engrossed in it. I'm all I'm just it, they pull me in. Um, and it's not like I'm just passively watching, but actively watching and where it was basically nearly flawless. But now I think the catch is, is that I realize, um, I realize that it's not necessarily that it's wrestlers, but it's more the runs that some wrestlers had. That's what I came down to because when I was thinking about these guys, because a lot of these guys had such long careers. And if you take the whole career into totality, I don't, I didn't have the same emotional investment in the, at every stretch of the way of their career. I got Stone Cold Steve Austin as my fifth. Um, okay. oh, I, actually okay. want, I actually wanted to put him and The Rock as number five because it's weird, right? They, they, they both get – one does movies and the other one takes over for a bit. One's injured with neck fusion surgery and the other one, they're just – they're so – they so overlap. I mean, yes, Steve Austin had his WCW career, but um, anyways, I, I kind of I, I have yep. if, if 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 I can't connect The Rock and Steve Austin as occupying one spot, I I totally get that's that's cheating. But I almost basically a lot of my fondness for Steve Austin does come with The Rock, and just you know they they almost complete each other in a way, even though they both had. Many, many great moments apart. Not disputing that, but I put it this way: I link Rock's greatness to Steve Austin. Rock does not make my top ten. So um, here's the thing. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned, right? I've heard this argument before: is Austin and Rock are very much intertwined. So people think of them as together, which is true. But when you think of the moments that they've had, you can think of really great Rock moments. They almost always include Austin, and that is true for Austin. However, Austin has also had really, really great moments without Rock. The reverse is not true for The Rock, and that's kind of why it does make sense that Austin beats out The Rock. I am yeah. surprised that he's your number five, though, so I'm curious who your fourth – because I had him at number two from my list. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious uh, where we go for your other ones. So you're, you're, that was huge, your number five, because I – yeah, man, because he's like an all-timer. It's kind of interesting that he's a number five. So not, not um, only is he, he an all-timer, um, he's um, – and I wonder how you feel about this because I forget what post you and I were on Facebook about, but we were talking about – I said like something like, oh, mainstream and corporate. And you said, well, Ryan, mainstream and corporate just means that you're successful. Um, yeah. <laughs> you're established. <laughs> like, there's, there's nothing wrong with, quote, selling out. And it's so true with Austin because you and I experienced like all these casuals coming into the mainstream and yet it didn't spoil our fandom for Austin because we knew this guy freaking struggled in WCW, yeah. like should have been a, should have been a fucking star in WCW, should have been a star right away in WWF coming off those ECW promos. Um, the ringmaster wasn't even the worst gimmick. I think putting him with Ted DiBiase was just god terrible. Yeah, that's and, a good point. And yeah, keep going. Yeah, and, was... and and so we we were there, and then you know him finally getting his flowers, as the kids say. But then you know Owen drops him, so he had the injury, which just you know hobbled his career. I mean, absolutely, he probably had another three four years at least in him. And um, but we were so yeah, I didn't mind. 
I didn't mind the guy next to me wearing an Austin 316 shirt because it was really cool to have one and not knowing anything about Steve Austin. And, you know, frankly, only watching wrestling for another couple of years and then would no longer be a wrestling fan. I almost didn't mind that Austin brought these people. Like it, it didn't, it didn't poison my hardcore fandom. And that's, that's kind of rare for me. I kind of like when guys sell out, I kind of like, Mm, yeah, I, I kind of, uh, I kind okay. of hold a so, grudge a little bit. So Steve here, Austin, when I say I to... when I say Steve Austin, I'm picturing there's really two runs, which because like I, I was thinking of my favorite wrestlers. He's in my number two. The stunning Steve would lure me in because I was really early into like, oh, I'm into wrestling, and I all of a sudden was digging this guy. It's like the music. He had this like real confidence in how he was pairing himself in that ring, real, like, just strength and everything he was doing. And it was kind of funny that I used to think that that finishing move where he just throws a guy on the top rope was was um, as vicious as it was. Because that was, to me, like, well, it's vicious. You could basically just swing your head onto a rope anytime. Mm-hmm. Then when he's it's in WWF. Too. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a no-no move. Yeah, okay. the hot shot. It's, 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 it's just hard for the opponent to, to basically know how to protect like, himself. Yeah. It's pretty difficult, yeah. So the when he comes to WWF, little side note: when you mentioned the the the, the ringmaster gimmick, that's a good point because I it always gets shits on, shit on like as part of his narrative about how he had to break away from the from the company's plan for him. But I didn't really think it was a shit narrative at the time. Um, I think I just didn't really get a chance to really know him. The DiBiase thing, I didn't really understand the link between the two, so that's maybe why it was didn't really make as much sense to me. But but when he turned to the rattlesnake. And if you go back and watch old Raws, because like I when I had the network and I was watching a bit of it, um, when he turned it on and he was just giving the stern to any heel, any face, he you could see the ferociousness of every single punch and every single stunner. And then when he would drop down to the ground, dive right into every guy's face and do the head where he's wag- wagging his head and swearing at the guy, like. That was very compelling television for a good six to eight months. Like this was post WrestleMania, even like after uh, Sean left, after he beat Sean, and it was just Austin, and it was just him and Mankind, whoever they could just pull out of the back because they had nobody at that point. That was really compelling for his character. I found just just you could see now as the year, even as the even as the face, even as it was the the run that he was having at Austin through sixteen, you could see week by week as the months went on, like his. Like he wasn't dropping down to the ground like he normally was, like with the same intensity. He wasn't jumping into guys' faces. When he would give the double finger to guys, he used to do that. Like he'd run right at the guy and jump into his face with with like speed. Then later on, you could see him just give the finger like standing up, falling backward, like lazily. You know, like I get it. He had enough problems with his neck. He wasn't going to have the same kind of speed and same kind of strength. Mm-hmm. But, but like it, it did change the character. So his run as the rattlesnake, which I differentiate between him as Austin, the face and the corporation, that was like a different era type, different era for Steve Austin. But he's my number two. Um, so my number five, I had Chris Benoit, the WCW years, because I didn't really care. Actually, like, oh, we were all pumped when he got to WWF but um, and the WWE, but um, it, it really wasn't... Um, it was nothing super memorable compared to when I was when it was watching him on Nitro. Um, no gimmicks, no angles that I can even really remember. I don't even necessarily know if I remember specific matches. It's just that whenever he did come out, 
he would have that song that would come out and he'd come out with woman and you knew you were going to watch a great match. So I was just locked in and he didn't even have to cut promos just the way that product was like people he couldn't cut promos. Yeah. He couldn't cut promos, but he didn't need to. He just came out and he would just deliver these just really vicious matches and the way they used him in angles. Cause he had women or he had the horsemen around him. It was perfect. And so I was, I was digging it and they keep, they, it all made you believe that he could become a number one guy, even if in reality, he really couldn't have become, and he really shouldn't have been a number one guy. Um, but he was my number five. Uh, Chris Benoit is my number two. All wow. Time. Interesting. Yeah. Um, in fact, my okay. notes here, pig, uh, piggybacking off your WCW, I wrote down Chris Benoit is the best TV match wrestler of all time. Oh, that is perfect. Yeah. That guy would. That guy would fight like fucking Glacier and Jerry Flynn in like seven minute matches. And it was like, holy fuck, way more impressive than like Goldberg, like Spear and Jackhammer. Don't get me wrong. Goldberg, Spear and Jackhammer was freaking amazing. Like he was, yeah, just, it was. He, he was great, but something with Chris Benoit, short arms, like, yeah, he kind of had a little bit more of a longer mullet in WCW. You come out with that leather vest. Um, that music was perfect. That generic, Time yeah. Warner music that they would, you know, get from like, you know, Studio B or wherever they had. Um yeah, Chris Chris Benoit was like um and it was funny too because I know um I listened to uh Conrad Thompson and a bunch of his interviews and I always kind of knew it at the time. I'm like, why is Chris Benoit beating everyone on TV and losing on pay-per-views? And sure enough, like he would like he would lose on every single pay per view because again he'd he'd fight guys like uh, Jerry Sags or whatever or freaking Ming and beat them and then you know lose to Raven on pay per view or lose to Booker T lose to Diamond Dallas Page. Um, more to your point, he probably was just a TV guy. They had three hours of Nitro at, at one point, so you know he was just a great for me. I never turned away. I would always watch the Chris Benoit matches. Um, never fast forward them when I had the tapes, just loved him. And as you I got really to know more and more WCW Chris Benoit, not you don't really you're not even really talking about WWF. Chris well ben. I well I'm, I'm getting I'm getting to oh, it, okay. right? because what happened was with, with Chris Benoit, you know, in the and actually um I don't know if you know this, but you got me into Torrance. Um like you were the first guy to like get me into Torrance and the concept of downloading torrents oh, okay, and how to download okay. Um, okay. And, and this and that and just like you know at a point where like you know this is like still when like napster and like limewire were still prevalent but there was this other you know dimension out there and and sure enough like i would i would you know hook up with guys that came out wrong uh hook up with people on the internet and like like wow like Eight Chris Benoit matches with Jushin Liger, Jushin Thunder, <laughs> Thunder Liger. Oh, that's and so yeah. yeah, so loved his Japan shit. Loved you know his WCW stuff. Um, WWF, WWE. Um, I think he came in pretty hot. He he quickly separated from the Radicals. He was having mat. He was having main event pay per view matches with The Rock within his first year. Um, I actually didn't like that Benoit would like. And, and actually, I think this was right around the time where Paul Heyman was doing commentary, and he would definitely put over Benoit. But even like Jerry Lawler, I remember this one line: Jerry Lawler is like, you know, they wouldn't shy away from how small he was compared to The Rock, but they would say stuff like, "It's not the size of the dog in the fight; it's the size of the fight in the dog." And 
But like Chris Benoit having like the rock and like the cross face for like two minutes and the rock not tapping and like no selling the shoulder and just rock bottom win. I'm just like, oh god, that. this guy's never gonna get us push. And finally, it did. Um, I did have some memorable. I mean, him and Angle had some amazing matches. Um, you know, Benoit got Edge, Benoit Rhino, Benoit and Austin, Benoit and uh, and even Lesnar. I mean, when when Paul Heyman got a hold of that, you know, the SmackDown Six, he certainly flourished there. And um, it was know, good. No, no, he was definitely serviceable. Yeah. But I guess the intensity of my like for Chris Benoit was highest when I saw him in WCW. Fair enough, fair enough. And I think yeah. he was presented that way. Um, Chris Benoit, I think, in WWF had to um, – he had to fight more from underneath, which means that he wasn't having these seven-minute matches. Like, he'd fight like – I don't know. Yeah, he'd have a one-on-one match against, like, Shawn Michaels. And I'm like, why is this guy selling for Michaels for, like, ten minutes? Like, yeah, <laughs> I know they're going to – I know they're building to a great 25-minute match, but I didn't like it, right? Um I think and, I know what it is. It's it's also a bit he had to adapt his style in WWF. It's the WWF style where you point out the crossface. You notice the way he did the crossface was different oh too, right? God. Because he, he would, would let yeah. the arm like soft like I don't know how you describe it, but it would be looser. And yes. whereas in WCW, it's like it's torquing in a really uncomfortable position. It actually looks yeah. legit. He would like, shoot it. Yeah. Just just like Jericho's line tamer was like, holy fuck. Like I do that to my son, man. He's getting out of that. <laughs> But and like the tap would come pretty quickly at that point. Like, yes, which and is they treated just, it, yeah. Which super pet peeve of mine. Like if a submission hold is going to make <laughs> you tap, ninety seconds later, it's going to make you tap within the first five seconds. Like when you see UFC guys tap, it's because it hurts like a bitch, yeah. and they don't want some in a snap. Never, never understood. I understand the choke because you're fighting, you're fighting, and then eventually you fade out and you pass out, but. When you're cranking a body part like a Kimura, like a crossface, um, yeah, like tapping out like minutes later makes makes no sense. My my number four is Kurt Angle. Which, so we were talking about he's very I mean very much intertwined with Chris Benoit. But yep. I'll say this though, I think it's really when I talk about my intensity of the like, it's really the first two maybe five years of his career. Like okay, right that first run once he left WWF, like all the other stuff later. But but even then, I think it was I'm trying to uh, like a it was really I mean it's actually got to be his run up like when he got introduced the way he had that whole first year and he got his championship in that first year. Then I think um, it might have been the the peak for me of Angle might have been the the match with Shane and then after that I'm kind of um, no you know what it's the Sean match the WrestleMania match, which gets forgotten. We've talked about that, but, mm-hmm. um, but it's, it's just, it's kind of like he, um, he brought me in, in, I don't know if he gets as much enough credit for being as complete a wrestler slash star performer, everything that you want, given how little time he spent actually training to be a pro wrestler, um, how little experience he actually has as a pro wrestler. Cause he's only like, he didn't go in, he didn't build his whole career like everyone else did before he got to WWF. He was like a homegrown talent. He's really the first mm-hmm. homegrown talent. Well, second after Mark Henry. But um, yeah, um Rock as well. I, th- I think I think uh, oh, yeah, The Rock. Uh, they all. They, uh, Doctor Tom Pritchard kind of did those three, right? And, that's true. Um, but the but Rock, you're right. I, I, every okay. I, I kind of view The Rock as 
wrestling royalty just because of the family he comes he from. But you're right. He didn't train them. Yeah. Kurt Angle literally did not know who was WWF champion when he signed the WWF contract. Like he, he did not grow up in wrestling and you're right about Kurt Angle. I mean, everyone tells the story. I mean, Jim Cornette tells the story. How about second day? He was taking the best flat back bump he's ever seen. So like, like no one does that on their second day or first hour of the second day, some shit like that. So no, I think the, I think the legend's true about Kurt Angle about, um, and everyone, it's funny, everyone always attributed it to his amateur wrestling background. There's been amateur wrestlers before, amateur wrestlers yeah. after, and like, no, that's, there's some special sauce with Kurt Angle that he, um, that's true. Yeah. He uh, had such a presence yeah. of mind. Sorry. Yeah. Just his psychology, right? Just because mm-hmm. he, he really, it almost seemed like he was learned, he goes getting better with each, with each month and year, you know, like, yeah. Say like post working with Benoit, like you could feel like he was learning some of the stuff that Benoit would do. Just these little tricks of like, mm-hmm. um, what you point out, like how you work on it, how you work on the body part, and you come back to it. Like, because if I remember his first ankle locks, like they were just kind of basic ankle locks, like Ken Shamrock would do. Then he mix it up where he could work and work and work, get there, get closer. Finally, he can wrap his grapevine, his legs around, like with Sean. Yeah. Like, I know, it was just a lot of these little small things. Yeah, in, roll like, into it, roll out. Like, yeah, people would do a hold on him and he would roll them up. Like, say, if uh, Undertaker was going for a last ride, he would slip out the back, boom, ankle lock. Oh, man, he just yeah. got, yeah. Um, I got Kurt Angle as my number three after Benoit. Um, almost, right. it's funny. Um, I actually kind of like, I actually didn't like the way he was introduced, um, believe it or not, because what I know now about, because obviously, you know, basically 2001 onward um, is when I went full into like UFC and pride and MMA. And I just, I, I've been, okay. it's, 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 it's my number one. It, it is my fandom. Like I, I, I consume it the most. It's the product I consume the most. Um, and knowing that he's a legit, like shooter, I almost didn't like the fact that Austin, Rock, um, Triple H would beat okay. him to the punch or outsmart him or out like wrestling move. It's like, no, that doesn't make sense. So I actually liked it when he did shave his head okay. and they did book him as a badass. And then I remember when he would like fight these guys again, like say The Rock, it's just like, whether babyface or heel, it's like, no, Kurt Angle's going to get the better of wrestling exchanges. If you're going to get one on him, it's even if you're a face, even if you're a baby face rock or a baby face, triple H in the case of triple H, when he was, um, you know, they were both fighting over Stephanie McMahon, they would have to do something underhanded because he's just, he's just a better wrestler. Um, and I, I like that because it's funny how it's, amateur wrestling and pro wrestling like it's such a when you're trying to explain that to people it's just like oh so you're saying <laughs> it's like it's like so what you're saying is triple h could beat like colby covington in a real fight it's like no no it's like of course not but wait a minute one's pro and one's amateur what does that mean right um i never liked that booking so when 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 kurt angle and brock lesnar had their program wwf could not have both Kurt Angle and Brock Lesnar be less of what they were presented at the time. Like whether they were face or, 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 or heels didn't matter. Like whoever they were facing, they just couldn't win those wrestling exchanges. Like Kurt Angle was losing, you know, 
when he was the Euro continental champion and king of the ring and all that. And he had hair and he was kind of a goofball. So I actually enjoyed the presentation of him being shooter Kurt Angle. Like if you're going to beat me, um, you're going to have to beat me in other ways because I'm the better pro wrestler. I'm, you know, you're going to have to be more um, underhanded. You're going to have to do other things. So, um, so you know, I, you're going to have to pull their top rope down. You're going to have to expose a turnbuckle. You're going to have to, if we're on the outside. Yeah. And this is, that, this is what, this, this is what I loved that, about Brock Lesnar. Um, the way, I think the best way Brock Lesnar would get the other guy to get his shit in is he would dominate you from pillar to post. And then when the guy was in the turnbuckle, Brock would run, like he would run a 40 yard dash into the turnbuckle. The guy would move and he would crash in the pole. And that made complete sense why now the other guy could get offense in. So once they started presenting Kurt Angle in that way, I dug him a lot more. But that um, speaks to character evolution. I mean, if you think about how MMA grew over that span of period, that span of time you're talking about, when Kurt Angle came in, it was the year, what, 99 or 2000? MMA, I don't, yeah. yeah, it was fledgling. It was growing, but it wasn't at the same level it was like 10 years later. For example, yeah, and no, so no. so Kurt Angle, you have to also take into account where the company was at this point. They already had, they'd already been very referential, um, reverent, I guess is the word I mean, where they would just be poke, you know, tongue in cheek, poking fun at itself in a bunch of ways. And so you couldn't bring in Kurt Angle as this U.S. Olympic gold medalist as a face, or not a face, but as this dominant beast. Like it had already been this very like hipster type of product for several years. So yeah. it was such a classically smart way to, instead of historically, we would bring in like Bruno San Martino and Bob Backlund and Luthez and all these legit wrestlers as these guys you look up and respect. But today's, but today's fan today, like 2001, was not going to respect that. They were never going to buy tickets for something like that. Let's take that guy. Let's ridicule all that stuff about Americana and what the, what the boomers all love. Let's just ridicule it. And then the Gen Xers and the millennials. Or at that time we could call us what did we call us then? The Gen Wires. But oh, like they were they were gonna get over he was gonna get over that way, like just spoofing all that stuff. He was really a spoof of Hulk Hogan, really, like that whole gimmick. You're right, and, you're right. And, and, and from from and, a character point of view, I, I totally get that. But we had just seen Ken Shamrock be like a legit fighter. Now I know there's a difference oh. between a fighter and 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 uh, and an amateur wrestler, but this is what this, I'm not asking WWE to like redo their history and how they booked Kurt Angle. It's just that when I watch, like, so when I have my you know YouTube uh, wormhole moments and I'm looking at you know Kurt Angle having to fight like I don't know Sean Stasiak and go like 12 minutes, I'm like, this is fucking stupid. <laughs> like, he should have like waxed them, right? So that, that's all I'm saying. I'm just like saying, yeah. so you and I are seeing the same thing and you're digging it. I'm just like, kind of later on. So later on, definitely was digging it. Um, but they had to, yeah, build up the character for the fans to care, for them to buy into yeah. what was going on. Like, because a lot, I mean, most people didn't know who Kurt Angle was. They didn't really watch every Olympic event, right? Um, so they don't know. I didn't know who he was until he came to WWF. And they talk about him having gold. And I'm like, okay. But then, you know, I got to say that angle with Brock and that WrestleMania, I want to say it was WrestleMania, I forget which WrestleMania, 21? No. 22 i forget exactly which one when he faced brock and uh 19 19 that's it i actually i mean it's kind of underwhelming looking back at it like the angle they build up to it i don't know there was just a i think that could i mean it was a good match but they could have could have done a little more for who's your number four 
the Nature Boy, Ric Flair. Interesting. Wow. Man, yeah, I, don't I think, think uh, my number 10. I don't think correct my top 10. Keep going. I think I get more and more. Uh, again, you know, we weren't really NWA, WCW guys, so everything kind of was retrospective and, you know, looking look back. That stuff, is it worth, is any of his stuff really, like, I don't know. I, mean, I dig it. I dig it. Well, and, and, and you know, I, I like, I like, I like the basic matches that he had. I freaking loved it. Like, you know, he would have these like 30 minute matches like Jerry Law. It was just like punch kick and just like, I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I dug it. I have, okay. um, it's funny because the wrestlers today to all this, um, you know, wrestlers today, it's all about freaking, um, you know, 500 super kicks and, you know, flippy shit. And I can't stand that. <laughs> I like almost too much action. Unbelievable. Way too much. Um, yeah, way too much. And, and Ric Flair was like, yeah, it was, it was simple. And like, he does, it's funny because he is self-deprecating in a way. He's like, I only have three moves. I could fight John Cena tomorrow. Um, yeah, he did a little bit more than that. He, um, I don't know, man, it was something about, so, what did it for me was uh, I did I love the um, the trilogy of him and Steamboat. Uh, I thought that was great. Um, so the thing with WCW and NWA, like they just they didn't have the pageantry. They had shitty lighting and like you know they weren't a TV product. And um, the crowds were the crowds were loud, but it just didn't resonate on screen. Um, you know, and, and like Jim Cornette talks about that. Um, but yeah, I mean, Ric Flair, like, it, you know, I, I caught a bit of him and I, you know, I, I liked his initial WWF run. I, I dug it. He won the Rumble. He fought Savage. He lost to Brett. Like, I just like, this is cool. He goes back to WCW, like freaking Sid and Arn Anderson get into a knife fight and they got to like put the belt on him against Vader. It was like fucking cool. He was not used very well, but when he was a foil for NWO Hogan, he was cool. Wasn't booked all that well at times. Um, just, yeah, man, he's like, I, I, I drink the Ric Flair Kool-Aid. Um, even okay. though I should be like smart enough not to, but like, I never, okay. He is, I, I so I've never dug Ric Flair from the beginning for the very first time I got introduced to him was when he came to WWF didn't dig any of his promos didn't understand the hype he didn't look in he was in shape his in-ring work so, so then his in-ring work not at all a fan of anything from any move he has to his finishing move I didn't understand what reaction he was getting um and then like the when he's in the ring like I completely agreed with Bret Hart's assessment that it's just this he just has the same match over and over. Like he does that stupid thing where he runs to the turnbuckle and then he runs up to the, t uh, what has happened? It's like he runs to the turnbuckle, he spins over the top, he runs across the apron, he tries to climb to the top, then he gets thrown off. It's like, it's, um, then it just Bret became Bret a parody. So then Bret, Bret, Bret Hart's walked that back, by the way, they're, they're super cool friends now. And, uh, Okay, they um, can still be friends, but his initial assessment was still completely accurate. Um, about sure. what Rick was if, as a wrestler. If, like, yeah, if, yeah, if you think that, and uh, listen, I'm not going to debate that he he did have similar move set and everything. His his match with Crescendo the same way and and whatnot. And I actually have that as part of my notes that 
he did become a parody of himself, which I actually loved. Because <laughs> um, so, um, it's just like, so in, in a 30-year career, whatever you had, 40 years, like, so you're not oh, developing God, yeah. any new moves. You're not developing your character at all. Like, nothing. I know Russo tried to do it with him yeah. in those later years. Like, okay, I mean, A for effort, but um, just not I compelling. Mean, not compelling. Well, okay, so, like, if you think about it, like, um, like, Neil Diamond, like, has, like, he has Sweet Caroline. Like, that, I, I think it's the worst song ever. I don't know why <laughs> people in England sing it for every fucking goddamn sporting event. Um, the guy still has been, like, I wouldn't say on top, but he, like, he does pretty well whenever he tours. And you know he's just going to play the one stupid song and everyone's going to sing along. Um, so I think, at worst, Ric Flair is Neil Diamond. And, okay, listen, when people say, like, I'm trying to think of who, like, thinks he's, like, the best. So, Jim Ross will say, like, Ric Flair is the, the greatest wrestler he's ever seen. And I almost, like, I, like Jim, I, I think you're lying. I think you've you've seen Kurt Angle. You've seen Prime Benoit. You saw fucking Eddie. Like, there's there's no way. And now, even now, he's calling, like, AEW. Like, he's, he's seeing the, the next generation that, uh, you know, so... I think when people say Ric Flair's the greatest, it's just a way of Paying placating to this guy, yes. like a like well, a grandfather of the industry, kind of. Not just not just that, but you are placating to a certain fan base. It's a safe answer to say like um, Ric Flair because your alternative is oh, okay. Your alternative is like you're either a Hulk, you're either a Hulk Hogan guy or a Ric Flair guy, right? And it's funny because it's the same again. It goes back to hip hop. People will it, say like, you know, it's it's Jay Z and Nas. Everyone wanted to be, everyone wanted to rap like Nas, but everyone wanted to make Jay Z money, and everyone wanted to have this corporate clout that Jay Z now has. Although Nas is apparently doing very well with cryptocurrency. Apparently, he got into that. You might be interested in that. Everyone wanted to make the Hulk Hogan money, but everyone be respected by their peers like Ric Flair because Ric Flair is the only guy that could party till 5 a.m. and still put on a 30-minute match the next day. So people have – the reason why Ric Flair is the greatest is because he has this cult-like following for those that actually went on tour with him. He he never said no to no wrestling dates. That That lionized him. So by the time you and I saw him in 1991, it almost didn't matter that we didn't yeah. like him because no, that's Rick true. Flair, Rick Flair had a built generation. up his cachet. Yeah, Rick Flair he'd already built up put in cachet. all those hours and, and years exactly. in the road. Like when he worked, he was traveling around the country, the world. So he worked. Was Hogan? Did he? I mean, I know he went to Japan for a little bit before, but did Hogan really work with as many people, as much talent as Rick got to work with in his career? No, no, because that, right? the NWA. No, because the NWA champion, he prided himself on going to Memphis and fight Jerry Lawler. He would go fight Junkyard Dog in Mid South. He'd go fight the Von Erichs at fucking yeah. Sportorium. Um, I forget who was out in California, like fucking uh, Pat Patterson or whoever. But yeah, no, Ric Flair, like, um, no, I mean, it wasn't even comparable. I mean, yeah. the WWF schedule was grueling, but the NWA champion, if you were the champion, that was equivalent to, I don't think anyone had the schedule yeah. that, that Rick had when he was champion. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that was, I think that's the key differentiator between Hogan and Flair, right? Because yeah. like the WWF is like we're just going to cordon ourselves off and create our own little universe here, which is sort of like the uh, in Europe the 
the Super League or whatever you call that thing, that the Super yeah, League. Yeah, Soccer Super League, absolutely. Um, um, so okay, so that's your number. Sorry, that was your number four. Yeah, and 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 if okay. if anyone's looking for a fun match that defines Ric Flair, it, it's funny how you know you you mentioned one point so you saw like Scott Steiner and Triple H wrestle and you thought it was a fine match and the internet dunked on it. <laughs> I love love love. This is my favorite Ric Flair match ever. It's Ric Flair versus Okay, For it's Ric Flair versus it's Ric Flair versus Vince McMahon at the 2002 Royal Rumble. Okay. And if if you listen to people, they're saying the biggest thing that they ever did with Vince McMahon, the worst thing they could have ever have done, whether Vince McMahon saying that you know if he was younger he could have taken Bret Hart, you know, in that real fight that they had, you know, Montreal '97. And people will say, like, like guys like Meltzer and stuff, it's like no one ever wants to hear the promoter saying that he can take a former world champion. So it's stupid that Vince would fight Austin, that Vince would fight Hogan, that Vince would fight Flair. I thought it was comical as shit. I <laughs> loved it because what they did for Flair versus Vince McMahon was <laughs> Vince was legit more jacked than Rick. So Rick is trying to wrestle Vince and he just can't get the early advantage. So Vince, even though he's bigger, did a heel tactic to get the advantage on Rick and Rick does color. But what's great after is like Vince can't beat Ric Flair. So then Ric Flair just like dominates the last seven minutes of the match. They were on the outside and the crowd's going nuts. And by the time Ric Flair gets Vince McMahon into the ring, he's slowly teasing the sharpshooter because like the fans know that Ric Flair <laughs> just it was just awesome because Vince got no offense in in the last seven minutes or eight minutes okay. or second half of the match. I just thought it was absolutely perfect. If you're going to do this kind of match, I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was like, all right, Ric Flair is the greatest because of this match, you know, and, you know, who cares about his match with like, I don't know, freaking so-and-so in Japan and Ricky Steamboat and Ron Garden <laughs> and all these guys like this. This was like the defining match, like of his career. I I absolutely loved it. It's it's absolutely my guilty pleasure, but it also crystallizes uh, the man's career and the little things that he can do that very few can't do. So, um, my favorite Ric Flair match was the um, was actually Undertaker WrestleMania. Yeah, I got to say that. Then it so was. Good. I just thought, uh, you know, to actually get Undertaker heel, they did. And then yeah. the build up, then the crescendo with Arn Anderson running in with his spine buster. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a great so, match. Great ending. Um, tr um, funny story about that. I was in, because I was at that WrestleMania and I was the first one in my section to spot Arn Anderson. I yelled Arn Anderson. I could see him. And uh, <laughs> everyone, I got like, it was awesome just me being able to get like 300 people to turn okay right to, to see Aaron anderson and then he did the spine buster and it was a two fall sorry two count it was freaking awesome oh man, man. uh oh, you was there Rick, okay yeah uh rick flair probably takes the best superplex um of all time that guy's just okay. like, yep get me vertical i'll take it and he just <laughs> the bump that's true yeah he does yeah just belts out to like yeah, the referee has to check on him because it's like, you know, like, is he really in pain? And, you yeah. know, obviously he's working it, but, um, yeah. My three is Eddie Guerrero. Okay. But it's just that one run. This was post-Latino heat. It was when he came back after the uh, suspension or 
firing. When he came back, Los Guerreros onward, when he, mm-hmm. it was like he found a new level. He found a new gear. It's like he seemed to click. Like, I never really, I don't think it's really talked about a lot how he just went from just this whatever Guerrero from the cruiserweight division to he is becoming sharper as a performer. His promos getting better. He's locking in just his whole, like the light sheet steel stuff in the ring. Like that came about in the later run. It really wasn't as good. Like he was getting better. I, I mean, the the match with the rock in his initial comeback, um, when he turned the rock bottom into a, like a takedown, whatever that was, that was really awesome. But that was a bit of a precursor to what he was going to become in those years. But then him, like, uh, like the the angle against Lesnar and the run the run and that mm-hmm. win over Lesnar, um, digging that. I was like, there was that battle the battle royal where he had to win his way in. All those ways he would sort of fall out of the ring, but then hold on, just use his complete upper body strength to pull him back in. Totally just digging it. Like he was. Like I used, and I said earlier, Kurt Angle being kind of like the complete package performer, but then that's what I said for many years. And all of a sudden, when Eddie came around, I put him just slightly above Kurt because okay. he was all that. Now, the difference between the two being that Kurt did it in like a year, one to two years, he was able to put it all together. It took Eddie like a decade or plus, but Eddie, um, he was doing all those athletic things, he was sound in the ring, his psychology performing adding in the emotion because i think the fans relationship with eddie was so much tighter than so many wrestlers there's only maybe two others i can think of who maybe their bonds with that wrestler were stronger so he had that complete package now we didn't get to see eddie long enough on top and have that run that he, he could have had but um but by that time he reached that pinnacle i think that was it now post that run i don't really recall that much after wrestlemania 20 but just that run that's he that he um he's in my number number three spot so eddie um i remember he got suspended and then i remember like he was at the i just remember ring of honor started he was at the first one he was at the first ever ring of honor and it's pretty crazy to see who was at the first ring of honor it's like nothing but hall of famers um okay he was at the first ring of honor and i remember being at a bar watching Monday Night Raw, um, not going to a bar to watch Monday Night Raw because I had it taped. I was taping it. And then Rob Van Dam is just on a random Raw. He beats like, I don't know, fucking Spike Dudley or some shit. And uh, Eddie Guerrero, um, just because Rob Van Dam's doing the the RVD hand motion on the, the turnbuckle. And Eddie Guerrero just comes underneath him and he's already he just slides in front of him into a power bomb and then does the frog splash and right away you knew what the angle was about it was about who's got the better frog splash and oh, yeah. he turned it into that amazing ladder match that probably would have been the greatest match of all time if not for that one fan interference um so yeah Ed, and you're right eddie came back from that suspension because you're right. Before that, it was like Latino heat with China. I'm just like, oh, this is terrible. Um, I, I never dug it. Like, okay, I, I get that he was making people laugh. And when you talk about people loving Eddie Guerrero, like they probably did fall in love with him doing that shit, that Latino heat stuff. Because he was so, he was funny. He was charismatic, endearing. Yeah, he was just charismatic. Like even the LWO stuff. I mean, Looking back at oh, the yeah. run, you just you just knew that like 
man, it's just like, yeah, they, they had something. And they made him like U.S. champion before they ever made him cruiserweight. It was so weird that they kind of like demoted well, him. He was, look, but my whole thing was is that he wasn't Eddie as we knew him all those times. He grew into, that's my whole thing. Yeah, yeah, that, I didn't that, care about Eddie fun. at all in WCW. I didn't care about him at all. He, yeah, he was I, just another one of those guys, another one of those Mexican cruiserweights. That's how I saw him. And then, okay, that's, that's why fine, I'm still blown but, away when I get to see him as he is when he's like beating Lesnar in San Francisco. Yes, it was Cal Palace. I, I, yeah, it was Cal Palace, San Francisco, or San Jose. Where's the Cal Palace? Is it? I thought it's I think San it's Jose. San Fran. I think it's yeah, uh, Cal Palace. Right here. I'm gonna say live it's Cal Daily Palace. City. Wow, I didn't mean Daily City. Okay. It's really interesting. Like when you actually drive around America and you see these places, like, wow, this is where WWF was. You show it on TV. It's like <laughs> glitz and glamour, but it's like, oh, this yeah. is where it is. Like, yeah. I walked by the ECW arena, the the Hammerstein Ballroom in New York City once. Yeah. And I just took a photo. I'm like, oh, this is where they do it. Yeah. I'm like, I, I remember that's so funny. You're just like, I know. It's just like, you know, like the Mighty Americans. And it's just really, it's yeah. just warehouse. We, it just shows when, you, right? When you have a grand vision, when, you turn it into something. Mm -hmm. not, you know. When I was in South Carolina, there was some like, I don't know, Wilkes Barrel Coliseum. I'm probably getting my arenas wrong. But anyways, I, I knew it was a famous like NWA arena. And it's like, this is where the five-star match happened between, you know, Dory Fung Jr. And uh, Mr. Wrestling 2. And I was like, <laughs> the fuck? Like, this, I, I know... <laughs> <laughs> there's know, dives right? on spadina that i've ate out of that are better than this place right <laughs> um no no, no. You, you're, you're 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 right about eddie guerrero um okay um i i think i dug him a little bit more than the typical guy in wcw i probably like we're, you and i were getting smart to the business at the time and yeah maybe we we're just like we weren't internet marks for like wcw not using eddie guerrero effectively because in the end they did use a lot of guys effectively and, you know, I'm glad they pushed guys like, you know, DDP and Goldberg and, you know, what on Ravens flock and whatnot. But yeah, I, you know, fine. There were some missed opportunities with Eddie Guerrero, but um, looking back now only because we knew what, what he would become. Um, but that W back to him feuding with Rob Van Dam, his hair was different. He was much more jacked. Um, right. You could just tell that he was like, you know, he it's it's what people have said about Eddie Guerrero. He died for the business. Um, I forget. I think it was Terry Funk that said that he he that's that was his cause of death, dying for the business, because he just he had to, you know, maintain a certain look and work a certain way. And, you know, there was just no deviating from that. And it definitely crescendoed to um, the Brock. You know what gets um, lost in the shuffle? Is it, because they always play the um, they always play the Cow Palace match from Vengeance or whatever it was, where he beats Brock. No Lee. way out. Yeah. No way out. Thank you. A couple things they always say like, "Well, Eddie didn't win clean." I'm like, "Well, I don't think you understand what made Eddie Eddie. Eddie didn't have to win clean even yeah. as a baby face. Like that's yeah. you know, and like like okay, there is something to like you do have to build another feud. They did." want to build Goldberg and Brock and it made sense the way they did. I maybe would have changed the order of things. Maybe I would have had an F five and then Bill Goldberg, but the referee's still out. And then Bill Goldberg comes out, spears Brock Lesnar. 
and then Eddie gets a two count, and then so in the end, Eddie does get the semi clean win. Okay, that's neither but, here nor there. But the thing I, I think the winning, win was though, good enough. You, no, well, the, the way that win was that the spear actually was inconsequential to the finish anyway, because the finish sure. was Brock went to go get the belt because he was going to go and whatever hit Eddie. But for whatever, I don't know why you were doing something stupid where you wanted to uh, to put the belt on the ground, but do an F five on the belt versus just swing it anyway. The belt's in the ring. He brought it in the ring. He picks up Eddie to do the F5. Eddie, the wrestler Eddie, counters into tornado, the DDT. Tornado DDT, yep. Yeah, and then that's what leads to the, to the frog splash, right? So it's yes. not even – it's a very strong okay. finish. Anyway, that's my take. I Listen, listen. you and I are in total agreement. I'm talking as the nerd wrestling fan living in his mom's basement. Being like, <laughs> oh, that's a catastrophe, not a clean finish. No, like, of course. That finish was <laughs> fucking brilliant. I had no issue yeah. with, the, with the finish. Um, Prior to that but, match, and oh, also speaking of counter, I, I now you had me tripping a bit because I'm like, oh, what what counter did Rock did he do to um, yeah? To Rock, well, that's Rock what I'm saying. And it, it was it was the arm it was it was the arm, the arm drag arm Rock, drag. Yeah, it was, he has probably got to be the best counter to a finisher wrestler there is. Like he will whatever the finisher was, he was able to turn it into some wild counter you wouldn't have expected. The rock bottom into the arm drag, the so F5 quick. into a into a the um what do you call that DDT? The F5 into the tornado DDT. Yeah. I'm trying to remember like what he would have done to Benoit's cross chase or Kurt Angle's um Olympic slam. Angle, Angle yeah, slam. He counters through all those, yeah. But like he's the only one who can come up with all that stuff and pull it off in a very convincing yeah. way. Where because there are some guys who try to do those counters to finishes and it looks so bad. Like yeah. Brian Daniels, he's not even on my top 20 or 30. He comes up with the worst <laughs> counters to some of these things. Anyway. Um, There's a fluidity that Eddie had that you only get when, like, you know, you have, like, five generations of wrestlers and your cousins are wrestlers. And, you know, and he had a bit of an amateur wrestling background as well. Um, it's, well, yeah, I mean, to be able to pull it off, in fairness, you've got to be a certain size, strength, and yeah. like. Like athleticism and ability, like yeah. Daniel Daniel Bryan cannot pull any of this stuff off because he's just too small and he's not strong enough. Yeah. That's it. Eddie Guerrero can contort his body in the air and he's strong enough to be pulling guys who are like much bigger than him down. It's just is it, it, that's how he can pull it off. Anyway, well, it, it goes it goes to what people have said, and I think the greatest compliment I can give Eddie Guerrero was that he was everyone's. They would say things like, "Oh, it's Eddie Guerrero. It's a night off. Oh, it's Eddie Guerrero. Best match I've ever had." Eddie, like you know, you don't get those many compliments because, yeah. So my number one, Bret Hart. I'm thinking it's yours too. From Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Best there is, the best there was, best there ever will be. Bret Hart, number one. So I was thinking, like I told you up up front, I was thinking of runs because all those wrestlers I listed, there was specific runs where they made their they made their name with me, and Bret Hart, his run was. Um, like from SummerSlam 91, when I go back and look at it, I don't know like why it captivated me because it doesn't look like it would, but it did. I was really engrossed in in seeing him and then he had really like only a few of those jobber matches leading into it. But then the way he turned Mr. Perfect's those leg drops to his abdomen, which really looked like leg drops to the to the balls, but turning it into the sharpshooter, which it's funny when you talk about submission holds that where they don't tap out right away. The sharpshooter by Brett is like the only one to me, which for some reason it looks like it makes sense. <laughs> like it looks like it hurts a lot. It looks like you won't necessarily need to tap right away, 
but it does look like you might he might cinch it in harder and harder and eventually you'll just tap later like that's that's, that's what went through my mind because i used to have that hang up later on when i started watching mma um but then beyond 91 he also had like other memorable matches to me were survivor series 95 and 98 diesel and um steve austin and sorry not 98 that's 96 um and you can really throw in 97, I guess, with LaShawn. But that's was really interesting when I think about it. That's a six-year run, at least, because I'm not even counting his tag team days, which they were my favorite tag team. That's a really long stretch of time for this guy to have left that much of an impact to me and um, so many other fans. And there actually are a lot more memorable matches I won't go into because then it's just regurgitating stuff a lot of us have already known. But um, what do you got to say about Brett? Wow. Um, so much. I mean, in terms of the emotional connection I've ever had with anyone, it's, it's like Bret Hart and no one else. Like after Bret Hart, it's like my children, <laughs> my wife. I, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not even, um, it's not even hyperbole. I think that's accurate. Um, yeah. Because a couple things, um, some caveats. When I tell people about Bret Hart, who they know of him, but know nothing about his story. I tell them like some cliff notes about his brother, what Vince did to him, the stroke, um, all the other tragedies in his life. Um, you know, he still lives in Calgary. Like I, you know, he, like so maybe I'm talking to someone who's like, you know, knows about. Wayne Gretzky and like other wrestlers who just, you know, they make their money and they never come back. I, I tell them about these little things about Bret Hart and they're just like, wow, that's, that's a movie, and, you know, and it, talk about a dumb cliche, you know, Oh, it, uh, it should be a movie. It's like, no, Bret, Bret Hart pretty much should be. And like, yeah, people should be lining up to, um, to, uh, to, to make that film about his life. Um, so I actually do remember a little bit about Bret Hart prior to the 91 um, SummerSlam match. And it's funny because my grandfather, uh, when I go to Portugal, has this one superstars where it was the culmination of a mini feud that he had with the Orient Express, where <laughs> the one... <laughs> talk about god <laughs> two masked guys and we're supposed to believe they're japanese i mean god and i think mr fuji was like half samoan he wasn't even japanese um, no no mr fuji he was actually japanese american but he actually was american like i i think he put on the i accent, thought he was but... i thought he was half uh samoan or something like that um thinking of uh yokozuna who was no 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 mr no um no yokozuna yeah, no, he... was full mayo mayo Soshi. Masayoshi Fujiwara. Yeah, he's he's Japanese. Um, he's born in Hawaii though. He died in Tennessee. Okay, okay, maybe. All right. Yeah, but he's Japanese American. But the Orient Express, Sato and Tanaka, they were Japanese. I thought. Oh really? Okay. Yeah. Because they actually wrestled without the masks, right? And uh, oh, I don't remember that. They were wearing the red tights. Yeah, I remember Um, that. Well, yeah. Mr. Fuji would always have the spot where uh, the referee wasn't looking. He put the cane in the corner, and they would Irish whip him in the cane. That would be the finish um, for their, you know, guy would be whipped into um, a cane turnbuckle, snap the cane. Mr. Fuji would then pick up the debris, and then Orange Express would get the would get. So Bret Hart would beat one member of the Orange Express one week, beat the other the next week. Um, 
and then would have to fight them both in a gauntlet style. So basically it was Bret Hart beat one member of the Orient Express. He'd get the pinfall. Wasn't even doing the sharpshooter. And uh, they would just double team him. And, you know, Gorilla would be like, oh, this is my goodness. You know, what's going on here? That evil Mr. Fuji. Next week, same thing. He'd be the other guy. But then finally, Brett beat them both. And before they could both ambush him, he got a hold of Mr. Fuji's cane. And he would just scare them out of the ring. And I'm just like, and I believe that was like part of the buildup to the SummerSlam match. Because WrestleMania was them losing to the Nasty Boys, the Hart Foundation, and they just oh, kind of yeah. like they just kind of split up. But yeah. in doing in in going through my Bret Hart wormholes, they did try and break up the Hart Foundation a couple times. Not break up, but just kind of had like singles pushes. So Anvil will do like a match against I don't know, I don't know um, against whoever Tom Zink and Bret Hart would like do a match against like Ricky Steamboat and. Then, you know, like two months down the road, the Hart Foundation would reform again. Um, so, yeah, from 91, um, it was, I hitched my wagon to Bret Hart. There was just no uncoupling that. Um, around that time, like, yeah, I watched baseball. I loved, like, George Bell and Kelly Gruber. And, you know, Patrick Law was, like, my favorite hockey player. But, you know, by the time he had to retire from WCW. That was like, that was like 10 years. And I was still as much of a fan. Like he just brought, he just brought the 12 year old out of me every he, single yeah. year. Right. So it was I like talk- this, it was like this combination of, he was like my action hero. And I never had to like, you know, I can imagine like teenage girls hanging like posters of like, <laughs> I don't know, Joey Lawrence you know, but like Bret Hart kind of did that for me. I was kind of dreamy about him in a way as well. It just, it just, he ticked off so many boxes that, you know, to the point where I, you know, I did tear up when he lost against Shawn Michaels in 96, because I knew that that was the direction WWF was going. I was like, oh shit, now Shawn's going to get the flowers. He's going to get the run. You know, Bret Hart's going to kind of like, you know, like that, that, that stung me because I knew enough about wrestling at the time. It's just like, you know, it's what happens when, you know, um, your beloved character gets like quote unquote replaced. Um, I'll let you jump in in just a second. I do want to say one thing before I dive more into Bret Hart, whereas, you know, the term well-rounded is often used as a crutch, but with Bret Hart, it was like, um, you know, his wrestling was like the, my favorite kind of wrestling, like everything that he did was just like exactly what I want to see when I watch his matches and what I want to see more of guys doing today. But, you know, yeah. people will always say like, Oh, it's his promos, his promos. His prom-. Well, do you think it was promos? They were awkward, but that's kind of what you would expect with like an athlete today. Like you interview like a hockey player after he gets off the ice. Like, yeah, it's, it's not going to sound good all the time. Like Bret Hart, like tr- was so serious and he treated himself so seriously as a serious <laughs> athlete that sometimes he would fumble his words. Sometimes he would say shit like, I heard a boxer, the, I, I kid you not, Jason, I heard a boxer the other day, they asked him, it was a top-ranked boxer, they asked him, hey, uh, Clarence, on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate your performance today? And he goes, ah, oh, you know, 1 to 10, I gave myself a B-minus. 
Like, <laughs> what? <laughs> Makes no sense. But that's that was the beauty of a Bret Hart promo. So, yeah, you could talk shit about, like, you know, you hear all these wrestling shoot interviews. Where, oh, Bret Hart couldn't cut a promo to save his life. First of all, he had some fantastic promos. He had fantastic even, promos. Thank you. And even the ones that were kind of cringy, it's like, yeah, but that's kind of what you want. Like, you expect him to be flustered. You expect him, like, when he's about to face his brother – that he's not making sense. You would expect him when he's facing his brother-in-law, you know, not to sound good. When Steve Austin says, if you're part an ass in front of Hitman, you get my exact impression of Bret Hart. You expect him to be like, you know, I, um, I think Steve's a great technical wrestler and it's going to be a technical match. And uh, have I said technical enough? I was like, yeah, he, he probably is going to sound like flustered after Steve Austin like rips him a new one. Like He sounds just, like it, a hockey player from Calgary. That's just what yeah, it is. And yeah, like, I mean, fuck, he's man. from Calgary. Like, he's yeah. not from El Paso. He's not going to sound the same way. I mean, that thing is, is he's living that gimmick. Because, like, if you pull a lot of guys out from Calgary, that's kind of how they are, right? Mm-hmm. Was Wayne Gretzky mm-hmm. any different? You know? Like, forget no. just, just is uh, – I'm trying to think of not even athletes, but just celebrities from these parts of the country. Like, I'm trying – okay, they're skipping me. But, like, when they talk, when they're on much music or whatever, do they sound that much different? Not really. No. That's just how they sound. When I, when you list when you watch TSN and all those guys who I can't even name give their horrible takes, their horrible the production, their acting, whatever you want to call it, they're trying to do what ESPN does, but it just looks super awkward because they're from whatever town in Alberta or Winnipeg or wherever, and that's just what it is. That's how they talk in, the, in that in that part of the world. So yeah. it makes complete sense. Um, Brett, though, part of why it was is I think he. I don't know if he's a natural face, but he was a face. And so he had to play that role when he turned heel, you know, the American heel in 96, or was it? Sorry. 96, 97, slowly 96, fully in 97. Yeah. When he was heel, then that's spring and summer. He cut great promos. He leaned into it. He was, I mean, I think it's probably because he probably was fully like convinced of everything he had to say too. But like, um, and it was really not all that much acting. And he's probably just digging. Like, he gets to be out in the road with his family. Like, that was, I don't know. I think he might have been in some interviews talking about that being, like, one of the funnest stretches of his career. And uh, that was the Bret Hart promo. That was the that was the spring and summer of the Bret Hart promo. I mean, he didn't wrestle, right? He was in that, whatever, that wheelchair. He was in a wheelchair cutting <laughs> those promos. It was perfect. Like, it's really interesting, like today, because back then the guy's injured, and you might write him off screen altogether for whatever reason, keep it fresh. But a lot of times these guys were just injured, and you still kept them out there doing promos. Whereas today, when someone's injured, you just take them right. They, I think they just take them right off TV altogether, just because they want to bring that return pop. But there's a whole thing missing where someone can just be injured, and they're just injured for weeks and months. You're right. I think he appreciates that run. Well, how could he not? I mean. Literally everyone from the Hart Foundation is now gone. He's the only one living. So, of course, he probably looks on that fondly. If you asked him during when he was doing Wrestling with Shadows and then his TSN interviews and then even his book, he hated it. But guess what? Him being uncomfortable with being this, you know, legit heel in the States, it again, Brett, you're taking it too seriously. Oh, shit, your (laughs) problems are amazing. Like, it's, it's, it's great. Like he's he's probably he's probably in the back bitching to like Bruce and Pat and Jim Cornette and Jim Ross saying like I don't want to do this shit and they're probably just like Brett Brett don't worry you're doing great because they knew that like if they get him out there they're gonna have magic with him because 
he he actually cares and he's uncomfortable doing this and they probably are thinking like no this this is great stuff he just doesn't realize it um so it almost becomes um i don't even know it it, it becomes this weird cathartic thing that he doesn't realize he's he's doing but <laughs> yeah i mean he'll he'll bright heart um and that's the thing right i mean i mean the, the true uh, like a, a wrestling trope that gets thrown around is like, oh, the better the baby face, the better the heel and vice versa. He was so great at, so when he was a face and he had to pick a body part, you know, he had to work on the leg oh, of yeah. Undertaker and, 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 uh, and Diesel, he would do it out of desperation. When he was a heel and he picked a body part, he did it because he was nasty. And you could tell the difference. You talked about earlier how Steve Austin would, lay in the middle finger and all that he was so nasty when he was when he was a heel and Undertaker was a face and he was you know taking out his legs and just you know he was just he had this viciousness to him whereas a face he had to do it because he's like i gotta get the sharpshooter or else i'm not walking away with a victory yeah subtle you're right subtle things with with brett where um God, I I made a list of things. I'm just going to rattle them off, and then maybe you can comment on them. Just things that he just does that yeah. a no one else does, or no one else does as good. He would kiss the belt and give it to the referee, yeah. like it just Sorry. just perfect. Like it was the most important thing in the world to him. What was what he was handing his sternum first into the turnbuckles. I mean, he looked like he got shot by a Desert Eagle shotgun gun. Okay. Excuse me. Sorry for oh, all my uncle has that by there. the way. I've, I've shot one of those. My uncle has that one. You got yeah. Desert Eagle? Yeah, in South Africa. So I shot one at the range. How yeah. like the kickback's insane, right? Like, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah my cousin Christ. when she because he wanted his daughters to also learn when they were young. So then when she mm-hmm. shot, like I think she wasn't holding it firm enough and it smacked her back in the head. Oh anyway. my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, his punches were mint, his vertical suplexes were his German suplex. I mean, we talk about Kurt Angle and Chris Benoit. He would whip out a German suplex like maybe every other pay-per-view match, and it was awesome his pile driver was amazing oh yeah um you know and here's the thing right um you know today's guys they're doing like they're all a bunch of spot monkeys right with their flippy shit and like they have to get in 30 moves in in a tv match but um here's the thing that makes bret hart for me number one okay number one yes i do think that he's the best i ever saw and yes, I do want to see guys wrestle more like him. But even if I don't, I look at guys like I look at today's like darling, like freaking Kenny Omega. You mentioned Brian Danielson. You look at all the like Cesaro, um, Roman Reigns. Anytime someone anoints like, oh, this is the greatest, and all the Japanese guys, right? Like Tanahashi Okada. I, I watch enough of all this product, and not one time do I say to myself, a prime Bret Hart, A couldn't have good matches with these guys b couldn't be better than these guys in the matches in other words stand out and c not elevate these quote-unquote good matches even more like i just i can't see the argument where like bret hart was so in tuned with the product that even if you take his move sets his psychology from 1996 it works today and in fact we should be doing more of what like in many ways wrestling is not evolving um, when Bret Hart did a 60 minute match, that was special because that was WWF's saying that 
There's only two guys in the world that can have a 60-minute match, and we're going to see here tonight. It's WrestleMania, it's Shawn Michaels, and Bret Hart. In other words, WWF was admitting that Warrior and Hogan couldn't do it. Um, Hogan and King Kong Bundy couldn't do it. Hogan and Savage couldn't do it. No, like WrestleMania 12, there was only two guys in our company's history, and that's the reason why we're having it. Now, with the advent of NXT and a lot more – you know, it, wrestling is very ubiquitous. Like what you see on WWE, you'll kind of see on New Japan, you know, longer matches, more guys getting their moves stuff in. You know, with Bret right. Hart, like, yeah. I'll say this about Bret Hart. When Bret Hart had, you know, a 25-minute match, 18 minutes in, he looked spent and so did his opponent. Like, that's the way a wrestling match should be. I don't want to see a 60-minute match where guys are exchanging 400 moves. Like, this isn't Street Fighter, the arcade <laughs> game. Like, I watch enough boxing. I watch enough MMA. I just watched uh, Volkanovski versus Ortega the other day. Those guys threw everything they had for 90 seconds in the third round, and they were spent. That's how you should look when you're fighting that hard for that long. And when I'm watching, you know, I'll grant it, when I'm watching Okada and Kenny Omega uh, wrestle, it's a great match, but it just doesn't make sense when they're so fresh at the fifty fifth at the fifty fifth minute mark. It makes no sense. Like guys should not be pulling off those moves at that point. And I feel like Bret Hart today would be a market correction on how wrestlers are acting today. Um, and that's why, in large part, he's my number one because he's my favorite wrestler. But he's also my number one almost in spite of what the product is today, because I'm like, mm, this shit wouldn't be happening if Bret Hart was calling a lot of matches today. Yeah. No, it, there's a lot of wisdom that doesn't seem like it's making its way out. So the thing is, is you know how people will ridicule wrestling, particularly in Bret Hart's era too, is everyone might ridicule that era or wrestling in general. Nobody I've ever met ever ridicules Bret Hart or anything Bret Hart's done. That's the interesting thing about it. No. You know what I mean? No. He's always been taken seriously, even by people who don't really know wrestling. And that leads me to one big point, really, to wrap it off with is and I lived don't in, like him. There's nobody who's like really, person. yeah, nobody really does. This is really my point is whenever I, so I've lived in multiple countries now. So I've met people around the world, like people away, far away from American influence and culture. And then the one thing that comes up is sometimes, like quite often, people from India, Lebanon, Singapore, wherever, WWF, they saw it as a kid. First person they mention is Bret Hart. That's it. It's like he left that much of an impact in so many other people. It's like yeah. he can make you feel. That's the thing. If you think about how many people, they're not even maybe speaking, speaking English necessarily as a kid or wherever they're from, but he can make you feel. And that to me is he puts put him in line with Eddie and Kurt and Steve. So, like, I think that's actually why you got those kind of – I got them on that list because they make you feel. Yeah. And he did that better Absolutely. than anybody. So, yeah, and, so, yeah. And, 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 it's, and it's funny because I actually do have one criticism with Brett is that he actually went for the lateral press um, way more often than he did. I, I do like when a guy hits a big move and they wrap up the leg or they hook the leg and they try and get a, a three count and it, it's dramatic. But also I'm thinking about, well, maybe Brett's thinking like, he doesn't really have that knockout offensive move. He's always just trying to set up for the sharpshooter. So he's, yeah, he might get discouraged if he doesn't get the three count. Maybe he does the backbreaker and the the second rope elbow, and that doesn't score the victory. Which you know, let's be let's be real, it never did. Um, but um, so even my criticism, my one criticism of Bret Hart, where I thought he should have like gone for those dramatic 
um, two counts where the guy hooks the leg. It's kind of nullified by the fact that, you know, he was always thinking sharpshooter oh, anyways. But the, the lateral press, the reason why you would do it as a wrestler and just keep doing it is because it wears the other guy out, right? That's, he has to pay and that's, attention and that's what out. I'm thinking. I'm, I'm wondering if that's what Bret Hart was thinking as well, and maybe I just wasn't getting that. So, yeah. again, my criticism of, of Bret Hart could easily be debunked by him. The yeah. one thing I will – it's funny because you mentioned that about uh, about Bret Hart, about, and you, you're far more well-traveled than I am. Um, the one criticism, because I yeah I've heard all the Bret Hart criticism, right? Oh, he takes it too seriously, all this shit. <laughs> the one thing that actually I like, I, I think I would have strangled him. And so Eric Bischoff did his his doing his eighty three weeks podcast, and he's he's doing a gimmick and he's rehashing old wrestling feuds. And Eric Bischoff's kind of slimy in the sense that he did shoot interviews years ago where he said the exact opposite of what he's saying now in the shoot interview era. So. You know, you almost like what's his what's his end game here, but I think part of me actually thinks that he doesn't think that Bret Hart's a Canadian legend or an international legend because here's where dumb Americans are dumb Americans. They were like they just don't get that. Like, well, why would Bret Hart not want to lose the title in 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 Montreal? Isn't he from Calgary? Like, it's just like a guy from New York doesn't want to lose in California. It's like no, dummy. It's it's because Canada is so small and that in, insignificant, we actually do care about guys from Calgary. Even if we do live in Toronto, it's, it's, it's different, right? So it's hard to explain that to an Eric Bischoff and it's, it's hard to explain to Eric Bischoff why Bret Hart would be, I actually don't think he believes it, but say if part of it does. Okay. That's you know something what? I do, I, I do get upset about because it's like, man, just so, like, no, hey, hold on a second. Let me just, just say this the same way you run into people from Lebanon and Indonesia and, you know, English might not be the second language. Dude, I bump into people all the time who don't even, like, they know Hulk Hogan and they know Bret Hart. Like, that's the only thing they know about wrestling in this country. So, and when when CBC came out with, like, the greatest Canadian ever, and it was, like, Tommy Douglas and, like, Pierre Trudeau, and I think Don Cherry was number six, Bret Hart was, like, 14th. And, like, I remember watching that CBC special. When he was announced at 14th, the studio audience went nuts. My parents were like, oh, Ryan, your boyfriend... Like, trust me, Bret Hart absolutely was a Canadian legend from, like, I'd say, like, 95 to, like, 2000. People might not know him now, but there was a point where, especially during that WCW run, and especially what happened, Montreal Screwjob and with his brother, that, you know, Bret Hart, he was actually a big deal in Canada. Like, there's actually no denying his popularity. As much as you and I want to romanticize him about this, like, you know, kind of blue collar guy, he actually was probably more popular than a lot of people kind of give him credit for. Like he was never Hulk Hogan, but he was kind of Hulk Hogan in Canada. And I think that gets slept on as well. So here's what I'll say. Okay. We have kind of hashed that point about um, whether or not he should lost the Montreal or whatever. Okay. I can understand that Brett being in Canada and from Calgary would himself have believed that losing in Montreal was a non-starter, and that would have made complete sense to him being from Canada. That's how he thinks. I also yeah. get why anybody outside of Canada in the world, not just America, would look at that and think, but that's a different city. What are you talking about, right? Particularly America. Yeah. And it's a completely logical position to take. What I do think really is, number one, it was less about wanting to not wanting to lose in Montreal and much more about he didn't want to lose to Sean. 
that's what it was. If Sean and him didn't have the beef, and if 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 they had already had good relationships and all that for the few months prior, Brett being Brett, he would have just lost. He he was never a type of guy to pull up that kind of stuff. Like he always pretty much went with what the promotion was doing. It's just that here was an opportunity to put his foot on the put put his foot down. Like it, I don't think because I don't think Brett. Um, I think it had a lot more to do with Brett and Sean than Brett and Canada. And just that it conveniently is part of the story that, no, I didn't want to lose in Canada. I think for me, I think for me, it's still excusing the stupidity of an American that they, okay. It's one thing not to know how Canadian dynamics work, but like, you know, if I do have to criticize Americans, which I hate to do (laughs) is that like, it's not hard to see why national heroes are national heroes in England. Like why, why, why is Conor McGregor so well, popular? Like, no, no, like, like, okay. Canada's still I think, a small country. No, no, so for an in American, terms of population. Like no, no, no. I, I think everybody's yeah. well aware of what you're saying. I think the way it's maybe you, maybe you can pick away how it's being said. But I think the stance of anybody who's not Canadian looks at that argument and it's just ridiculing the basis of the argument. They're saying, it's not saying I don't understand that that's how they think. It's I think it's stupid that that's how they think and feel. That's kind of yeah. that's really what they're coming from. Which is a fair point to take. I think it's stupid. I don't want Toronto to be associated with the rest of the country. I want Toronto to be Toronto on its own. I'd actually rather sure. Toronto to have its own, like its own head of state and passport. But um, I'm I'm alone in thinking that. So I think Eric Bischoff and Ric Flair. Well, his views have probably changed since then. But when they talked about that, they were ridiculing how Brett and the rest of Canada thought of themselves because they had reeked of an inferiority complex as well, which it did. A, a little bit, but I think it was us buying into uh, a wrestling angle, and um, like I never, I never thought it was America versus Canada, like in, in that totality. Like you know, like this is ridiculous, right? This is just our Canadian wrestlers against your American wrestlers. I thought it was all fun, but yeah, for like when Eric Bischoff, because he, here's the thing, it came to a head when Eric Bischoff was, you know, and Kevin Nash. And to an extent, I believe Hulk Hulk Hogan. Um, by the way, the only time I ever saw Bret Hart live was at the Nitro at um, Air Canada Center, where he had the Ty Domi jersey, and Bill Goldberg speared him into his yeah. gut and the steel. Right. So they they try to scrap that. It was basically like Bret Hart and Kevin Sullivan and like. A couple of the guys that just like begged Bischoff to like, no, like Brett's got to do this. Like, you don't understand. He's like, he's like, like, like fucking Kevin Sullivan knew like how over (laughs) Bret Hart was. Like, that's why I don't like, like, like when Kevin Sullivan is like the, um, you know, the voice of wisdom in in a in a wrestling meeting. It's like, come on, man. Like, if if that's even true, I I tend to believe it. So like Bret Hart had to fight for that angle to happen on that day. And it was like a huge pop and they're like, it was an effective, um, it was effective angle. So that's why Eric Bischoff cleans that because they say, Oh, uh, Eric, you wanted to scrap this. Like, well, I didn't want to scrap it, but like Bret Hart thought he was a Canadian legend. It's like, because he fucking was. And even if he wasn't, he certainly was <laughs> on that day. So that's again, going back to, he, he was a Canadian legend. I agree. I'm yeah, not, yeah. Not so, so back, so back yeah. to like, you know, the knock on, on Bret Hart, you know, taking himself too seriously, which by the way, Jim Cornette eloquently says like, Brett, you were insufferable in 96 and 97 because you took yourself too seriously. And now Jim Cornette's like, we need more Bret Hart's. Like there's just no <laughs> better encapsulation of the wrestling business <laughs> then and now. Um, 
And so there's, I guess to say like, there's one, there's one critique of Bret Hart that I, you know, will not take. And I, yeah, I will like puff my chest out with, with my Canadianism, I suppose. And just, you know, double down on like, no, Bret Hart was over in Canada and he was over to this extent by even non-wrestling fans. So anyways, uh, Bret Hart, number one. And yeah, that's my guy.